you have a Bible, grab it, go to Matthew chapter 5. I'm pretty psyched to be back in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, as Andrew already said, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's some here on the table for you. Uh, those are our gift to you. If you want to take it, read it, give it away, whatever you want to do with it, uh, that is something we would love to see our people doing. Uh, you can download the Bible app. Uh, on your phone. Uh, We are going through a series through the Gospel of Matthew. We took a little break for a few weeks, but we're back in it now and will be for a long time. (laughs) And where we find ourselves is uh, Matthew chapter 5. And Matthew chapter 5 is situated in a particular part of the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is preaching uh, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. So when you think of Jesus and you think of his teachings and you think of the things that he's uh, said that sound familiar, more often than not, they come from this chunk of scripture, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, which is uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And what we've been saying about the Sermon on the Mount Uh, is that it is the most well-known but least obeyed teachings of Jesus. So we know it, right? We know, you know, the things he says. And this morning we're going to get after one that, you know, probably everyone says and people love and they put it on mugs and cards, but no, tattoo it on their bodies, but no one actually lives it out. It's the the, the stuff that sounds great. It's tweetable. uh, You know, it just, it's got this kind of sentimental vibe to it. But once you start to get in there, dig around, unpack what Jesus is actually saying, you come to realize that, oh snap, this is, this is like really, really hard. This is really, really hard to live up to. It's really, really hard to obey. And here's, here's why. Because what Jesus is doing here is he's laying out for his followers what we've been calling the constitution of the kingdom. In other words, this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like when Jesus Christ is king over our hearts. The things that he's unpacking here uh, are the things then that we will live in light of. Like this is what our lives should look like when Jesus is ruling and reigning. But but here's the problem. Uh, This isn't what our lives look like. There's When we come to the Sermon on the Mount or really any of uh, the teachings that come out of the Bible, essentially, this is what's happening Two kingdoms are colliding. Two kingdoms are converging. Two kingdoms are running in conflict with one another. Uh, The kingdom of Jesus is coming up against the kingdom of, in this case for me, it's Chris, or the kingdom of you. And there's this conflict, there's this tension point that arises where we have to make really, really, really hard choices. Like we say we love Jesus, you know, it's Sunday morning, you're in a church gathering. If you've been coming for a long time, you're like, I love Jesus. I'll put my hand up for that one. But then he says these things and we have to decide because it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost. There's a pain point. There's a pressure. There's a tension. There's a reality that we have to like overcome some things. And that's where Chris has to die. Jesus has to rule and reign. And that's where this thing gets really messy and really hard and really difficult. And that will definitely be the case this morning as we come up against what I think is probably one of the more difficult teachings of Jesus. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to get to the end of the chapter this morning, picking up in verse 43. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you have heard that it was said. Let's stop there for just a second. It's really important that we understand that Within, So there's this context, this broader context of the Gospel of Matthew. There's this broader context of the Sermon on the Mount. But then even within the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is very intentional about the things he says and when he says them. So where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5, coming towards the end of the chapter, is a series of incidents where Jesus is confronting the teaching of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. 
So if you go back to Matthew chapter five, this won't be on the screen. You don't have to go back there, but Matthew chapter five, verse 20, Jesus says, your righteousness should exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then if you come to the end of this chapter, he says in verse 48, and we'll get there, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. This is sort of a a book, the bookends of a section where Jesus is coming up against the conventional uh, religious wisdom of the day and he's confronting it. And so six times Jesus says this. He's, he'll come to his followers and he'll say, you have heard it said, da, 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 but I tell you. And so this is the sixth and final one, the sixth and final time that Jesus is confronting the religious leaders. And, and here's, you know, we, we often think of Jesus and our, our kind of initial thoughts are, you know, sort of this meek and mild, humble, Galilean peasant shepherd Jesus, right? Like beauty pageant sash and a lamb, a baby lamb in one hand and a, and a baby in the other. And he's just, you know, spitting out religious platitudes. But the reality is what he's about to say here is incredibly confrontational. Like what he's doing in this section, the kind of things that he's saying, the, the, the ways in which he's saying them, the ways in which he's confronting the religious establishment, This is why they killed him. They didn't kill him because he was hugging them so much, right? He he wasn't loving their inner child. He was spanking it. And they came against him. They had him killed. So so there's a sense is we're going to jump into this. You know, you got to realize he's, he's confronting us. He's confronting you. So let's look at what he says here. So verse 43, you have heard it said... Love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Love your neighbors, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So, so this is what the Pharisees, this is what the religious leaders were teaching. They, they would come to the people and they would teach, uh, here's what the Bible says. You're to love your neighbor, but you are to hate your enemy. Now, I think Andrew alluded to this uh, last week, but this is a day and age where people did not have the Bible on hand to read. Right, the Bible, you know, having Bibles in your house where you could read them alone, study them, understand them, that's like a modern invention. That's the last 500 years since the dawn of the printing press. Before that, you were completely dependent on your religious leaders and teachers to tell you what the Bible said. There might have been one copy for an entire village or for an entire region. You'd go to the synagogue, it would be read. You would just have to trust the interpretation of the religious leader of the day. So now you guys have a Bible. I could say something. You could look at it and go, that's not what it says. You can call me out on that. We can have uh, you know, conflict over that. We can debate about what scripture actually teaches. That wasn't the case then. The case then was that the religious leaders would teach and then you would have to, uh, you know, live accordingly. And so the scribes and Pharisees were distorting the teaching of God. They were distorting uh, the law of God. They were distorting what God said. And so this is what they would teach. It's okay to love your neighbor. You should do that, but it's also okay to hate your enemy. And so here's what they were doing. They would pull from the Old Testament these these verses where, I mean, it's, it's clear from the Old Testament that we are to love our neighbor. I mean, the, the, the Old Testament is littered with examples of the ways in which God calls us to care for widow, care for orphan, care for brother and sister. Like, that's all over the place. But here's what the religious leaders were doing. They were looking for a loophole to justify their hate of people who weren't quite like them. And so they found passages of Scripture... Uh, passages like uh, in the book of Psalms, there's a, a group of Psalms that we call the imprecatory Psalms, where, where David is, 
he's uh, David who writes many of the Psalms. He's, he's writing his heartfelt prayers to the Lord. They're kind of like worship songs, right? Like this is like Kurt Cobain, you know, having a bad day and he's writing a song. This is what David's doing. So, so he's writing these Psalms and he's like, God, why have you uh, brought my enemies against me? Lord, would you kill my enemies? Would you strike them against the rocks? Would you kill their children? Would you, would you just lift them from my presence? Get rid of them, Lord. Justify me. Just, you know, he, he's just calling out to God. There's the brokenness, the depths, the realness, the rawness of his heart. He's calling out to God to take care of his enemies for him. And I mean, we, we probably should pray honest like this more often, but this is what David was doing. He was just like, it was the rawness and realness of what was going on in his heart. Now, it's, it's really important to understand that there's certain parts of the Bible that are what we call prescriptive. Prescriptive, prescriptive texts are texts whereby God is actually prescribing a principle for your life that you are to indeed live out. That's what we're in today in Matthew chapter 5. This is what we would call a prescriptive text. But then there are descriptive texts. And descriptive texts are not there to prescribe how to live. They're actually just describing what is going on. There are things we can pull from that. There are things we can learn from it. But just because David said, you should, you know, God, would you kill my enemies? That doesn't mean we should want to kill our enemies. But here's what the Pharisees and teachers of the law were doing. They were distorting God's word. And they were saying, because those things are in there, look at God actually wants us to hate our enemies. And so they, they were encouraging the people of God to actually come against those, check this out, who weren't like them, who they didn't like. So, so later in this text, Jesus is going to compare the Pharisees and teachers of the law to tax collectors. He's going he's gonna to compare them to pagans. Those, that just means people who have no God or, or, or are irreligious. And these are the exact people that the Pharisees, the teachers, were saying to the people of God, it's okay to hate. See, what they were doing is they were looking for a loophole to justify, a loophole in the law of God to justify their desire to not want to love people who were like them. I mean, this is a very, you don't have to look too far in church history to see that this is something that we are very guilty of in the church. Right, you go back to just a few hundred years in church history, you have the Crusades, you have the Spanish Inquisition, you have uh, things like the Salem witch trials, you have uh, Christians, church people who claim to love and follow Jesus doing horrible, horrible things in the name of Jesus. Why? Because they're doing exactly what the Pharisees and teachers of the law are doing here in Matthew chapter 5. And it's easy to do what C.S. Lewis calls, he calls this chronological snobbery, where we look back over human history, go, oh my goodness, those people were so foolish, how could they ever do anything like that? This is a problem in the church today. There are, there are people groups who feel as if they are at odds with the church. Now, this is complicated, complex. Okay, I'm not assigning blame here. But there are, there are, I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to say that there are large swaths of Christians who have said, you know what, LGBTQ+, those people, they're not like us. We're going to give lip service to loving them and not hating them. But at the end of the day, ultimately, 
That's what we're going to do. We're going to hate them. They feel marginalized by the church. They're, they're you know, it's, it's politically, this is something the church does. There's all kinds of ways in which we as the people of God regularly look for loopholes to justify our hate. And, and I think really at the, the this text doesn't go there, but, but as I was just praying over this text this morning and just kind of, yeah, just engaging with the Spirit, I was like, man, it's so obvious. Here, here's what we do. We actually dehumanize an entire group of people and somehow convince ourselves that, that we're better than them. We set ourselves apart from them. We're better than them. And consequently, as a result of that, here's what we end up doing. We mar the image and likeness of God. We convince ourselves that somehow we are more made in the image and likeness of God than someone else. And therefore, that, that then becomes the justification for us to do horrendous things to other people. And now that's true on a, on a macro level, but it's true on a micro level. Like in your neighborhood, I don't, I don't know what your neighborhood's like, but you know, there's always on a street, there's that neighbor, right? You know, that neighbor. If you're like, well, our street doesn't have that neighbor. You're that neighbor on your street. <laughs> that is you. Everyone's talking about you behind your back. No, but there's that neighbor, right? They're, they let their kids run roughshod. Their dog poos everywhere. They don't keep their grass at the right uh, you know, length, uh, their yard's a disaster. Uh, they don't live up to your expectations for what it means to be a neighbor in this community. And you tell yourself a story about them. You start to convince yourself that that person is somehow worthy of, and, and hate, right? It seems like a strong word. Like we, we would never say, I hate that person. But as we're, we'll see when we get into this, you don't love them. Not, not the way Jesus is describing love here. Right? Or, you, or you, simple things. I mean, I think this is like a weekly example uh, at West Village where you're driving in traffic and somebody who drives differently than you, right? Like they have a different rule of the road when it comes to merging on it, you know, anywhere at like between the hours of like 7.30 and 9 or three because we're a government town uh, and 5.30. Like any merge, like merging is like, this is like love your neighbor, but hate those who merge differently than you do. Right? It's okay because they're dumb. They deserve to be hated. But, but this, is, this is what we do. We do, we do this all, all the time. And if we're, we're not careful, if, if we're not thinking through the lens of the gospel as Jesus is going to call us to in just a second, we can be just like the Pharisees. Find a loophole to justify hating people who aren't like us. You know, and, and it's easy. Like if, if you're here and you're thinking, man, that's not me, be careful. Be careful because, you know, the prophet Jeremiah says, the human heart is deceitful above all things. I can say, I, th I think I can say in 16 years of pastoral ministry, I've never had somebody call me up and say, Chris, I have an emergency. And then I meet with them. And they say, I, I think I struggle with hating my enemies. It's never, I don't think it's ever happened. Sometimes soft-hearted people, if you draw it out of them, will acknowledge that there's some brokenness there and they'll work through repentance, but on their own, almost never. And so I can pretty much guarantee on some level, every single one of us 
is living in light of this teaching of the Pharisees, that we love people who are like us, and we, we struggle with hating those who are not. So, so Jesus goes on and he corrects, he corrects their teaching. Look at what he says, verse 34, or 44, sorry. Uh, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, we talk about, uh, we talk about the Sermon on the Mount being one of the, the, the most well-known but least obeyed teachings of Jesus. This is one of those verses, right? This is on a lot of mugs. Right, we love this verse. This is like, this is the golden rule, right? Do unto others as they would do unto you. Like, we, we love this. In fact, in church history, this is one of the most, in early church history, this is one of the most well-known verses. A uh, 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 scholar, Preston Sprinkle, says that verse 44 is the most po- was the most popular verse in the early church, that it was quoted in 26 different places by 10 different writers uh, in the first 300 years of Christianity, and this is, a, this is an oral tradition where they didn't do a lot of writing. So it was written down a lot. It was re- recited a lot. In fact, he says it's the most celebrated verse in the early church. It's the John 3.16 of the early church, he says. But while it's popular, it is difficult. It's confrontational. Why? Well, there's two things Jesus is saying here, okay? The first one is this, love your enemies. What does he mean by that? He means love your enemies. He means love them. Love them. Last week, Andrew preached did a wonderful job talking about, talking about not resisting the evildoer. Well, here Jesus is upping the ante, and he's saying it's not just about not resisting, it's actually about loving. Now, when we start to talk about the word love, we have to clarify terms here because we have sort of devalued the word love. In our English language, we have one word for the word love. It's the word love, and we use it, you know, often, liberally, right? I love Christmas music, or I don't, but I love Christmas music, and I love my wife, right? Like, let's, okay, explain that to me. In the Greek, there were four words for the word love. I won't get into all of them this morning, but the, the definition, or the Greek word rather, that Jesus is using here is the word agape love. He's talking about, it's a, it's a covenantal love. Uh, there'll be a definition of this love up on the screen. It says this, doing things for the benefit of the other person or being willing to see their best. Doing things for the benefit of the other person or being willing to see their best. He's saying if you're going to love your enemies, it's not enough to just not hate them. But you have to actually be willing to do things for their benefit. Uh, The best analogy that we have in the New Testament, in the Bible, uh, the whole of Scripture is the marriage relationship. The marriage relationship is ultimately, the, it encompasses all four of the Greek definitions of love, but, but it is indeed a great picture of agape love, of this covenantal love, of this love of your enemy that Jesus is describing here, right? I mean, if you've ever been married, there's times where you don't feel like loving. You don't, you, no, yeah. You don't feel like it. I don't view because I have to. I said I was going to. And so you stick to your commitment because you said you would do it, right? Like a young married couple, they come to pre-marriage counseling. 
you know, they're sitting there on the couch and they're batting their eyes at each other and they got stars in their eyes and they can't keep their hands off each other and they go on their honeymoon and they come home and like six minutes after they call me and they're like, I want to get a divorce. Well, why? Because they're so annoying. My, my, my husband, my wife, it's so annoying. Well, what are they doing? They're stupid stuff. Well, didn't they do all that stupid stuff before you got married? Yeah, but it was, it was cute then and I could go home at the end of the night. Now it's like 24-7 in my face. The things that you thought were cute are now annoying and stupid. And I hate them. Well, you have to love them. You have to do things, pursue their best interest. This is the kind of love that Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about some sappy, sentimental, Jerry Maguire, you know, oh, you make me feel good, love you when it's convenient and easy and when the wind is blowing in the right direction and the stars align. He's saying, love your enemies. I mean, just think about this for a second, friends. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, you know, lots of people here, lots of stories, lots of past, lots of brokenness, right? We've got ex-spouses. We've got husbands and wives who are in conflict. We've got kids who have said horrible, hurtful things. We have people who have been abused and hurt. And Jesus says, like, love them. Now, now, he doesn't say like them. He doesn't say be their best friend. But he does say to pursue their best interest. And I don't know about you, but I hear this and I think to myself, what are you talking about? This is crazy talk, Jesus. If you've been here for this series, we've been saying that the kingdom of God, that there's this upside-down nature to it. That it's completely backwards. It's completely, Jesus takes the way that our hearts naturally want to live and he flips them completely upside down. Remember Jesus' kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is wherever Jesus has rule and reign. And what Jesus is saying here is wherever I have rule and reign, that is where the love of enemy is a part of the constitution. It's a part of the way we live. So what does it look like for us to actively pursue the best interest of those who we want to hate. Who you want to hate. Who's wronged you. They've offended you. They weren't in the right in any way. What they did was horrible. It was wrong. Jesus isn't trying to validate or excuse or minimize or trivialize the sin, uh, the brokenness, the hurt, none of that. But he is saying that wherever he has rule and reign, 
love of enemy will be the fruit of his presence. It's a hard word. It's a hard word. Look at what he says next. He says, love your enemy. Second thing he says here in verse 44, pray for those who persecute you. Again, I mean, this is crazy, right? You hear this, you're like, no, no, no. When people are persecuting me, when people are coming against me, when people are harming me, I I punch them. I don't pray for them, right? We extend the right hand of fellowship, right? Welcome to the church and boom, there you go. Down for the count. That's what I want to do, right? We want to, you know, you, you look at church, again, church history or the way we respond as, as a people generally, when we come under conflict, it's not to lay down our rights as Jesus did, but rather to fight for them. So we start a petition, we start a rally, we hold signs, we rally the troops, we you know, take a stand, we draw a line, and we say, this is how it's going to be. And Jesus is saying, no, no, that's not how it's going to be. If I am king and you're part of my kingdom, then you are to pray for those who persecute you. Now, let's just be clear what Jesus isn't saying. What, he, what he's not saying here is, is do, you know, do the prayer of like Psalm 69. Jesus, take my enemies and dash them against the rocks. Right? That's not the kind of prayer Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about the G, this kind of prayer, right? Like you ever pray this one? Jesus, could you change them to be more like me so it'd be easier for me to like them? Right? You ever pray that about your spouse? Don't answer that. That was rhetorical, Okay. Unless your spouse isn't here, then just be honest, because I know you did. That's not what he's saying. He, he's, he's taking the agape love that he just talked about, he's applying it to prayer, and he's saying, pray for their best interest. What? So, so, so pray that the, the, your enemy, the person who is persecuted you, is persecuting you, who has come against you, who has hurt you, would be blessed. Now, I, okay, confession time here, okay? I get it. This is hard. I am walking this out right now. There are people in my life right now, in real time, that, that I'm, I'm like, I don't want to see them. I don't want to talk to them. They have hurt me. I would describe them as my enemies, even though they're not my enemies. That's how I feel about them. And I get into my office on Wednesday, and I crack my Bible. Okay, what am I preaching on this week? Verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Like, stupid sovereignty of God. (laughs) Right? And so I'm working, I'm prepping. Spirit says, Chris, you need to, every time you think about them, pray for them. Pray for them. Something happens when you pray for someone. See, there's lots of ways that prayer is effective and helpful, right? But what prayer is not about is changing other people or changing God. So often we pray with the heart that God would change our, our circumstances, right? That like it's like genie in a bottle kind of stuff. Or he would change other people. But perhaps it's actually that the Spirit would change you. but I don't want to be changed. 
We have a conflict of kingdoms. We have a conflict of kingdoms. See, when you start to pray for someone that is your functional enemy that you hate, here's what happens. The Spirit starts to curb your will and change your affections in a way that you could not do on your own. And you actually start to be changed by the Spirit to have a supernatural love for them. Right now, you don't want to. I get it. But the Spirit can actually produce something in you that will give you the grace to do it. Look at what Jesus says. We won't unpack these verses too much, but look at verse 45. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He, oh, sorry, no, go down to verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not, uh, are not even the tax collectors doing that? Verse 47, and if you uh, greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. You see, here's what Jesus is doing. Remember what I said here. He's being incredibly controversial, confrontational to the teachers of the law. He actually names the two groups of people that the Pharisees are trying to find this loophole to give justification to hate. And he says, you know what? They love the people that are just like them. But in my kingdom, we love and we, we love and pursue and, and want the best interest for not the people that are just like us, but actually our enemies. So here's what he's saying. It's natural. It's easy to want to love the people that are just like you, right? This is why we want to be in a community group with people who are in the same socioeconomic status, have the same kind of things going on in our family. We, we, I don't want to be in a community group with any kids. I don't want to be in a community group with any old people. I don't want to be in a community group with, you know, like I just want to be with people that are like me. Why? Because we want, it's easy to love people that are just like you. It doesn't take any work. You know, the spirit doesn't have to change you. You don't have to repent of any sin because you get to hang out with all your friends. So no kids at our community group, no kids. Can you imagine we ever said no seniors at our community group? <laughs> what? That's horrible. Well, kids, like they're all made in the image and likeness of God. It's a glorious, dysfunctional mess, and all it does is exposes your brokenness. It's natural to love people that are just like you. It's easy. It's convenient. You don't have to try. That's what Jesus is saying here. You need a supernatural, an unnatural change of heart to be able to do what Jesus is talking about here. Something unnatural has to take place in your heart to change you, to give you the grace to be able to love people that aren't like you, to be able to love your enemies, to be able to pursue the best interests of people who hate you and who you hate. You can't do it. So pray for them. And as you pray for them, the Spirit of God changes you gives you a new heart, gives you the grace that you didn't have. And something unnatural happens, right? Jesus says, the flesh is good for nothing, but the spirit gives life. In the flesh, you have nothing. Your efforts, they're not going to produce love of enemy, but the spirit will. Why? Look at what he says here in verse 45. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, that you may be children of your father in heaven. Now, let me just really quickly uh, be clear about what he's not saying here. What he's not saying is if you love your enemies, then you will be children of God. So this isn't like works-based. 
right? Many of us have been in church before and we think we have to do a whole bunch of things to please God. So if I love my enemies, then somehow I've indebted myself, uh, God's in, I'm indebted, God's indebted to me and he has to love me because I did the things that he told me that, uh, that I'm supposed to do. And so now I get to be a part of his family. That's not what he's saying. He's actually saying, Jesus is saying the complete opposite of that. Jesus is saying is, what Jesus is saying here is if you are in the family of the father, you will start to look like one of his kids. Very important distinction. Christianity is not a do more, try harder project. It is a be changed and be transformed by the spirit of God and you will start to have new affections and a new way of living. Uh, the easiest analogy of this is if you go out into the lobby after the gathering, you will be able to pick my kids out of the crowd, right? Out of the, the squillions of kids out there. You'll be like, that one's Chris's, that one's Chris's, that one's Chris's, that one's Chris's. Why? Because they all look like me. Even the one we adopted is starting to change and like look like us. It's weird. I don't know what's going on. But he's saying children will look like their father. So if you are in the family of the father, you are going to start to look like the father, if, if you realize, this is what he's saying, it's actually beautiful. It's beautiful. He's saying if you realize that you were once an enemy of God, you weren't in pursuit of God, you didn't love him, but rather he came for you, he loved you, he gave his life for you, he went to the cross for you, that even though you were running away from him, he chased after you, pursued you, and brought you back into his family by his grace, by Jesus' shed blood on the cross, if that has happened and you've been changed and transformed, then the natural outflow of that is going to be that you're going to look more and more like your dad every single day. Amen? That's what he's saying. And then look at what he says next. He says, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Some of us will hear this, and we, and we ask this question, and it's, and I think it's a reasonable question, right? How, how come God allows bad things to happen to good people and good things to happen to bad people? How come, you know, I don't know, drug dealers win the lottery and single moms get cancer? Why does that happen? It's a good question with a faulty premise. See, the faulty premise is this, that there's such thing as a good person. That's the same fallacy and problem that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had. That's why they said it's okay to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Because they thought they were good. They thought that, you know, my mom told me I'm a snowflake, one of a kind. I'm special. And they started to believe their own press. Instead of realizing that God chose them and blessed them to be a blessing, they thought he blessed them for themselves. And so because of that, they deserved all the blessings of God. And so we often think that. We often think, why would God bring hardship into my life and let someone else have good things? And here's what Jesus is saying. You need to understand something. In God's economy, there's one good person, and that's Jesus. And everyone else is broken. And don't miss this, because this is actually... Beautiful, what he's saying here. He even allows the sun to shine on the unrighteous. God is so generous and so indiscriminate with his grace and love and mercy, so lavish, if you will, 
that even on the unrighteous, he pours it out. So you might be here, you got dragged here by a friend or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever, your husband, whatever. you just like, I'm here for the free lunch after. But I'm so far from the grace of God. The good news for you is this, that you can't run outside of his grace. No matter how hard you try, God loves you. See, see, Jesus is doing something beautiful here. He's holding up the central tenet of the very essence of who God is. He's love. And his love is demonstrated. It's put on display by being other-centered. Love of enemy is the ultimate display of the very essence of who God is. So you might be sitting here feeling completely unworthy of the love of God. And God's saying his blessing is for you. His heart is for you. And there's nothing that you can do that's going to change that. In 1 John, it's expressed like this. 1 John chapter 4, second half of verse 8, John writes, God is love. God is love. And then he displays how that love is expressed. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God is love. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5. And his love is expressed in a desire, a pursuit of his enemies. I mean, if you think about it in the most simplest of terms, Jesus was in heaven in the perfect community group, right? Father, Son, and Spirit living in total harmony. And he leaves all of that to come to earth to pursue us, wayward, rebellion, rebellious children. Reconciling us, going, not seeking his own interest, but seeking our interest in going to the cross. And here's what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5. When you realize that that is the case, you will love your enemies. When you pray for those who are persecuting you, the Spirit of God will press into you the deep reality of the love and grace of God. Look at what he says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Dear friends, we also ought to or get to love one another. Tim Keller says this about Jesus. If you reject him being Jesus, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. 
If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. The ultimate expression of God is love. This agape, other-centered, pursuing their best interests, even when they are your enemies, kind of love is what Jesus displayed for us on the cross. Pouring out his life. This is what we need to be able to have a heart change, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So let me just ask a couple questions. First one is this, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you don't know him. You feel far from him. You feel like you have not experienced his grace. You have not experienced his love. You have not experienced his mercy. You feel like you are unworthy of what he has to offer you. Here's what you need to know. God loves you. He loves you. He loves you dearly. And his invitation to you this morning is to not run from him, but instead run to him. That he actually wants to meet with you. He wants to have relationship with you. He wants to have communion with you. And it doesn't matter how long you run for, he's going to continue to pursue you. If you're here this morning and you don't know why, that is why. It is not an accident that you woke up this morning and came here to hear this. It's because the Spirit of God has something for you. He wants you to know. He wants to plant in your heart the seed, the reality that he is love, and that love extends even to you. If you're here this morning and you already have received that, you've already experienced that, you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of his kingdom, the invitation is essentially the same thing. Oh, we, we need to ask the question, who is the person in our life who we would define as our enemy? And then will we press in and pray for them? Will we allow the Spirit of God to come into our life to change us and transform us in such a way that he would do that which we could not do for ourselves? Something unnatural would be birthed out of our hearts. I invite Troy and the band to come up as we close. Jesus ends this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He ends this section by saying, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's easy to hear that. And think, well, I can't. And that's a good response. <laughs> that's a good response. What Jesus is doing here is he's actually paraphrasing something out of Leviticus chapter 19 that is stated over and over and over again throughout the law. In the law of God, we have in the Old Testament the law of God where God gives the law to his people. He defines for them what it looks like to live as his people. And, and littered all throughout the law, he has this phrase he uses over and over and over again. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy as I am holy. In other words, live in such a way, this is what he's saying, live in such a way that your life would look like what I look like. And we hear the word holy, and our immediate 
definition or the picture we get in our mind is this picture of moral uprightness, right? Trying to obey rules. And there's a sense, a small sense in which that is true. The word holy means so much more than that. It's so much more dynamic. The word holy literally means to be set apart for something. Uh, In the Old Testament, God's people were set apart. They were called by God. They were blessed to be a blessing. So God gives them the law so that they would live in such a way that all the other nations around them would see that God is good, God is loving, God is kind, God is gracious. They were to be a living picture of the holiness that is God. And then here, what we have in the New Testament is, if you remember, through Matthew's gospel, he comes along and he starts inviting people to come and follow him. In Matthew chapter 4, he goes on to say, uh, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In other words, come and follow me because the kingdom of heaven is coming, right? I am, the kingdom is here because I am here. And then here we have this picture of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, with all these people gathered around him, whereby he's, he's giving them not a new law, but the fulfillment of the law. And he says to them, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, what he's saying to us in verse 48 is that when we live this out, we are a living picture of what God is like. So, when we live out this other-centered enemy love, what is being put on display? Jesus on the cross. When we pursue the best interests of those who have come against us, what are other people seeing? They're seeing a picture of Jesus on the cross. When we pray for those who persecute us, And God changes our heart, gives us new affections. The Spirit of God works in us in a way that he has not worked before. What starts to happen? We look more and more like Jesus. We talk about gospel saturation, right? We don't want to fill a movie theater. We want to fill a city. Gospel saturation. We want every day, every man, woman, and child to have a daily encounter with Jesus and his church through word and deed. Jesus is saying, you are my kingdom people. When you live like this, they will have an encounter with me. Be holy, therefore, because I am holy. Be perfect, therefore, because I am perfect. And the right response is, but we can't. And what I love about Jesus is he doesn't just call us to live a certain way. He then also gives us the means by which to do it. He says, I know you can't. I lived a perfect life in your place. I went to the cross for your brokenness, for your failures, for your sins. I rose again, conquering death, Satan, hell, the wrath of God. And I filled you with my Holy Spirit who will empower you and change you and transform you. Jesus isn't calling you to try really, really hard to love your enemies. He's calling you to get off the throne 
and let him be Lord. And to do it again, and to do it again, and to do it again. And our invitation from him is to submit. Submit. Will we do that? Let me pray for us. Jesus, it's a hard word. But I thank you that you not just call us to hard things, but then give us the grace to live them out. That you want to fill us. You want to work through us. You don't want us to try and do this in our own power and in our own strength, but Lord, you deeply want to press your other-centered love into our hearts. Your desire is first and foremost that we would know how loved we are by you. And that love would change and transform us and we would live differently because of it. So Lord, would you make our hearts open and available to receive your grace and receive your love and receive your mercy? And then as we are changed as we are transformed, make it so obvious and clear the ways in which we need to lay down our pride, our self-righteousness, our comfort, maybe even our hurt, some of our junk. We, We invite you, Lord Jesus, to come, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.